Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. And the more I hear that chicken, the worse it sounds. Like, it sounds like that rooster's about to pass away. But it's endured for probably about 25 years here on this show. There's a history to that. Uh, we won't get into it now. I just finished a rousing uh, conversation last show with David Limbaugh and his book. And now I've got someone else in studio, one of my favorite people, Natasha Crane. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Thank you so much. What are you doing here? Well, you asked me to come in, oh, and then Greg Kokel calls and say, hey, will you come in? You do it. So here I am. Well, the reason that she's here, actually, is um, we have decided, and every year in December, we have our end-of-year strategy for development, and we offer a wonderful book to those who are going to send in a gift at the end of year. And um, sometimes I have a new title that we can offer, sometimes it's others but this time i don't have anything new my next book won't be out till june and so uh we banged it around figured out what is the best book out now that would be the most applicable and useful to our audience and natasha we came up with your title which is called faithfully different now we've had you on the show and uh, we've talked about this book but i kind of want to revisit some of the uh the main points of it, uh, just for a few minutes. And uh, Natasha's in studio uh, because she's in the office, and she's in the office because there's about 30, 25, 30 boxes of her books that we're going to give away in December as people send their gifts in. Um, and she's signed every single one of them. And you're almost done. I am almost done. My hand is almost numb, but... It's good. Oh, I, you know, and you didn't have a helper. You were going to bring your son or your daughter? I was going to bring one of my kids, but they're all three down with the flu right now. So I had to escape and do it by myself. Because I, I always had my, my, was now my 14-year-old, but, you know, when she was younger and the new books come in, she would turn to the right page so I could sign it off, and she would save me from all that page turning uh, you have to do it yourself, but uh, you've been banging away for a couple of hours here and almost done. So um, I saw you on Dobson, not Dobson, Focus. Focus on the family, that tells yes. me That tells everybody how old I am, right? <laughs> okay. Um, Focus on the family. Dobson's long gone from there. But my wife and I were looking. She had the YouTube up on the screen on the TV, and she was flipping through the some of the things, and there was a face I recognized. Natasha Crane, and there you were, and you did an interview with Focus on the Family on this book. How did that go? Great. I always enjoy going out to Focus on the Family. It's a great organization, and yeah. always like talking to them about the books. Yeah, so you've done four times with them, right? Yeah, for one for each of my books. Each of the book, yeah, that you've done. Um, tell us a little bit, for those who are not familiar with you, we're going to build up here to Faithfully Different, but you actually, this is a... This is a cultural assessment and a way of training Christians to respond to the way the culture is now. Okay, for, that's my little thumbnail sketch. Um, but you started out in a different vein. So tell us how you started out writing books. 
Well, my first three books were apologetics books that were written specifically to equip parents okay. to be able to have those kinds of conversations with their kids. So in total, across my first three books, there were a hundred different questions for parents to learn how to answer with okay. their kids. And they were just broken down into bite-sized chapters, four or five pages each, so that parents can quickly get an understanding of, hey, this is the question that culture is asking. These are the kinds of things that people will push toward my kids, and here's how I can respond mm -hmm. as a Christian. And so that was really my focus for mm -hmm. the first several years that I was writing. So the, the lane that you were in, to use Jay Warner's language, uh, was a mom who's got to raise kids in a tough culture and wants to invest in them, not just broad spiritual concepts, but things that will help them resist the, um, the direction the culture is pulling them, both spiritually and culturally, etc. So this is mom. So you started out also with a blog, right? Right. That's how I got started in everything. I just decided to start a blog in 2011, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't know what the word apologetics was at the mm -hmm. time. I literally just started a blog for fun. I called it Christian Mom Thoughts. Didn't really think anything about that name. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I'm going to have some thoughts. I'm going to put them out there. I had three Christian kids. Mom Thoughts. Thoughts. Okay, Christian Mom Thoughts. <laughs> yes. All right. Which and, strikes strikes me as a very appealing title to Christian moms. I suppose so. In, in retrospect, it sounds horrible to me, but you know, it's one of those things that it, I didn't intend to become a writer, speaker, or anything like that. Right, I was right. just going to put some stuff out there. I had three kids who were three and under at the time. I wanted to have kind of an outlet, and I wanted to share what we were doing to raise our little kids to know and love the Lord. Just and, a case in point of blooming where you're planted. So here's yeah. a mom who loves the Lord, who understands a few things, but not really deep into it. It's learning some things makes a difference, starts a blog, Christian Mom Thoughts, and then it began to snowball a bit. Yeah, it started to snowball, really, because as people were sharing what I was writing, and these were just little things like devotions we were doing with our kids and stuff like that, but I started getting a lot of skeptics coming to my site. I mm. really don't even know what was bringing so many people at the time because I wasn't trying to provoke any kinds of conversations. I wouldn't have known how to have those conversations. And you weren't so on on air, you had no, no other no. footprint at all. No, not at all. But everyone was blogging at the time. That was kind of the thing. In Everybody 2011 was, was blogging time. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. a lot of people were following blogs and a lot of people would comment. It was before people were commenting so much on social media. So I would just get lots of comments, suddenly from skeptics who were saying things like, why are you indoctrinating your kids? There's no evidence for God's existence. We don't even know that Jesus existed. God has been proven to, you know, he's been put out of a job basically because mm -hmm. of science. So God I'm hearing. Dead, kind of. Yeah. yeah. So I'm hearing all these kinds of things. The Bible's filled with errors and contradictions. And even though I grew up in the church and was a lifelong Christian, I just I had no idea mm -hmm. how to respond to those things. And so I started researching answers. I discovered apologetics at mm -hmm. that point because I kind of had to. And once I learned that there was this whole discipline out there and all these answers, I got really excited and into mm -hmm. it. And I started just reading intensively mm -hmm. everything that I could get my hands so, on. So I wonder on a personal note, and we've never talked about this, but I wonder at that particular stage when you were getting a lot of challenge from all these skeptics. Did that shake your confidence a little bit at the time? I don't think it, it shook my confidence immediately because I figured that there were answers to mm -hmm. some degree. I would say that when I started digging into things, I was very cognizant about wanting to read both sides of everything. So I read lots of books by atheists, and then I would read Christian books. And mm -hmm. so sometimes, I think especially, I struggled on some of the issues of age of the earth and evolution. Mm -hmm. And so on those kinds of things, once I dug into that, 
I started to get a little shaky at times. And I, and I talk a little bit about that in my first book. Mm -hmm. But once I continued to dig in, I continued to press in. And I just said, you know, I don't want to raise my kids in something false. Mm -hmm. I don't want to teach them something that isn't true. So I've got to just go head, head down into this because yeah. I've got to discover the truth. And once I did, then I started becoming much more confident mm -hmm. by finding these answers. So your first book is called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, right? Yes. Okay. And if to, correct me if I don't describe this quite accurately, but I'm familiar with it. I got it on my floor with a whole bunch of other books, you know, and all three of yours, uh, actually all four of them. But that makes it sound this, so special. It's on yes, the floor with a bunch right, of other books. Well, it's not hidden away in the stacks. It's okay. right there where I can trip over it and see it. Uh, we'll get more into Faithfully Different, which is the one I've read thoroughly. The earlier ones I didn't read thoroughly because there weren't so much for me. Um, they were short vignettes, studies, turnkey kind of uh, enterprises so that moms or dads could um, train their children in these bite-sized segments that were kid-friendly but had substantive content to them. And the parents didn't have to be specialists, theologians, apologists, philosophers. They could just read your introductory material for that segment and then, like I said, turnkey, follow the steps and lead their children through that particular exercise and then um, through the book. Fair description? Yeah, absolutely. My hope and, you know, that the heart of the book is that, and the two books that came after that, is that parents won't just use it as kind of a, oh, I'm going to go to this like a an encyclopedia when I need help with this, but mm -hmm. rather that they would take the time to actually read the whole book and understand these are the questions that are being asked and think of it as kind of a curriculum for their kid's childhood right, to right. say these are the questions I'm going to have to cover with them at some point and to bring it to their kids rather than waiting for kids to bring them the question. Because a kid might never ask you certain questions, mm -hmm. but they're going to get faced with them later. So we as the parents need to be prepared and understand this is what my kids need to know about. And so that's really my hope for it, that it won't just turn into a resource mm -hmm. where a parent goes and says, ah, I don't know the answer to that. Let me go check this book by Natasha Crane. Oh, yeah, right. But rather that they're getting equipped and educated so that they feel confident to have those conversations on an everyday basis. So we're not... In standard reason principle here, we're not isolating, we're inoculating. Right. And we're trying to do it in advance. Um, one of the things I really like about that and the two books that follow we'll talk about in a moment um, is that even for somebody who, like myself, who knows and understands a lot of the basic issues, what you've done is you've made them all kid-friendly, and it's in a certain sense it is a mentoring curriculum for your kids that you don't have to put together somebody else who knows about that and has done a good job has done it for us and then we can just kind of follow the steps so if you want to have a a, a weekly or a bi-weekly or a nightly whatever you want to do in your family devotion time whatever uh time of training for your kids this is a way to do it and you don't have to figure it out you just follow natasha's lead so that's keeping your kids on god's side is that largely answering apologetics challenges or yeah, so it's 40 questions that are covered in the books, and it's and it's broken out into five different sections. So there's a section on God, Jesus, truth and worldviews, the Bible, and then science. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of, I think of it as an apologetics 101 for mm -hmm. Christian parents, really. Mm -hmm. And so it gives kind of a, an overview of all these issues so that if a parent has never learned anything about apologetics, they can pick up that book and mm -hmm. know kind of broadly speaking, okay, these are the things that we're talking about when we talk about defending the faith. It, it reminds me of the homeschooling, which we don't do, but I 
I've heard people talk about it, and they say, don't worry, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know the stuff that needs to be taught a couple days before you teach your kids, right? <laughs> That's right. It's got to be one step ahead of the kids. Or the and, morning of. Or the morning of. Okay, <laughs> yes. so that kind of, that m- makes it less daunting, and I think that's especially important for these kind of topics, which some people think are just beyond them to manage. So you have Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, and then you have two other books that are specific to issues. Second book is? Talking with your kids about God, and then the third one is talking with your kids about Jesus. (laughs) So basically, the first book is that broad overview book, but then after that book came out, a lot of parents said, well, I love the style of this. I love these short chapters that are easy to read. I can do one before bed, something like that. What do I read next that's like this? Mm -hmm. I want to go deeper now. And so talking with your kids about God is 30 conversations at the God level. So it goes deeper into all the conversations about evidence for God's existence, Mm -hmm. the nature of God, issues of God and science, those kinds of questions. And then talking with your kids about Jesus is all the Jesus-level questions. So talking about who was Jesus historically and what did Jesus teach, mm-hmm. and that there are several chapters on the death of Jesus. What did they mean, theologically speaking, and then the evidence for the resurrection. So they get into the Jesus-level apologetics. Mm-hmm. So between the three, like I said, there are a hundred different questions that are covered. Mm-hmm. It's just at different levels. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the book that we are featuring this year um, in the month of December, which for me is is tomorrow the first i'm thinking today's the 29th but when people listen to this it'll be friday so you'll be into december so we're in december (laughs) all right and this is an important month for us because this is uh you know they say black friday is when most businesses enter into the black they're losing money all season well well that's not quite the way we're at here at stand a reason but it is a big part of our season the last month, and so this is why we encourage people to think about uh, being especially generous if they've received from us uh, to be generous giving to us. And uh, and so this is why we try to showcase a particularly significant book as a gift to those who give a gift to us. And uh, we chose, as I mentioned earlier, Faithfully Different, and um, the subtitle is Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. And... Um, I'm actually kind of flattered because I I read this whole book, every word, I endorsed the book, and Harvest House put the endorsement right on the cover, so that's kind of that's kind of sweet. Uh, but I'm glad that they did because I believe in this work here. And um, I remember you told me that I had been I'd been I'd been last few years giving a talk titled "Hand me that Bible right there, please." This is my Bible because right inside the cover is a sticky that has the title, Faithfulness is Not Theologically Complicated. And when you heard me talk about the content, you said, I like that because that's what I'm writing on right now in this new book that came to be faithfully different. So tell us a little bit about why you made a change in the, the kind of book you write and why you wrote this particular one. Well, for me, like a lot of people in 2020, a lot of things started to become a lot more clear. And I was just seeing so much going on around us that seemed to suggest that a lot of Christians were letting a secular type of thinking Mm -hmm. really infiltrate their biblical worldview. And so we were seeing all kinds of movements and we were seeing all kinds of things happening on social media where Christians were really embracing a lot of secular ideas. And even though I had always been very, very sure to stay in my lane using the terminology 
analogy used earlier about, you know, parenting and apologetics, Mm -hmm. I decided to go ahead and write a a blog post. And it was called Five Ways That Christians Are Being Swept Into a Secular Worldview in This Cultural Moment. Mm -hmm. And this thing went viral. It was liked and shared 277,000 times. It Mm -hmm. really struck a chord with people. And I received emails for weeks from people just saying, thank you for putting your finger on this because I felt like something wasn't right with a lot of the things that Christians are getting involved in right now, but I didn't know exactly what. Mm -hmm. And so that was an encouragement because that was actually the biggest article I'd ever written. And that was my first one that was outside of parenting. So Mm -hmm. I kept writing articles. Biggest meaning the most popular, most responsive. Right. right. And so I kept writing articles on my blog, really just addressing the cultural things that were going on. And they just continued to be really well received. Uh, So that led to me thinking, you know what, there needs to be a book length treatment of this whole idea that secularism is the predominant worldview that's surrounding us as Christians. And it's putting a lot of pressure on what we believe, how we think, and how we live out our faith. And those are the three sections of the book. Well, I I know that you labored over this work and uh, the idea of taking out a book. The the other three, I mean, obviously any book is going to be a labor, but you, you have kind of a structure already with those. You've got the questions, you know how you're doing. It's a kind of turnkey from a writer's perspective. I got to do this in the first part, do this, then this, and okay, that's got one. Now, next question. So that that simplifies the project, I think, from a writing perspective. But this, you're taking on a whole new thing and uh, and I know how you labored for a long time, working at these ideas and developing the ideas, and and uh, and I think they were, the, the, well, here is what I say on the top. This is what they put: a brilliant assessment of our current cultural moment, loaded with insight, yet perfectly practical. Now that's just one sentence. I wrote it's longer endorsement because I had a lot more to say about it, but that's what made the cover, and. Um, and I think that's really true. I, th- I think the culture now is hard to understand because there's there's a certain complexity when you talk about deconversions and deconstruction deconversion, which we just did our realities on. You cover that in the book. You talk about critical race theory or equity, EID, or is it DIE or IED? IED is an explosive. DIE is dead, so it's DEI. Okay, so, um, but these are things that are penetrating everywhere in our culture, and they're they're after our children, all of these things. And so um, to take those things on as heavy issues, but then not only to understand them, which you're fully capable of doing with your own training, your background, your education, but then to communicate that so we can understand it and make use of that. I think you did a great job. Can you say something about maybe a few minutes here? I'm looking at my time. um, About each of those sections. Did you say it's in three sections? Because you have a clever way of kind of characterizing the problem uh, that's a little bit memorable, and uh, though I'm not remembering it at the moment, but... you, you have it. So <laughs> you're probably talking about the four pillars of secularism. There you that, go. That's something that's that a lot of people have latched onto. I've read the book. I've probably right. gotten the most feedback on that because yeah. it's sort of a filtering mechanism that I talk about. Because I the know book. the details, but I can't remember the clever ways you put it. Uh, yeah. So so basically, I talk about the fact that you know the it, the it, the whole book kind of boils down to the idea that the tie that functionally binds the worldviews of millions of people is the authority of the self. 
rather than the authority of God. So at at core, yes, we have all these individual issues that we talk about and debate about in culture, but ultimately it's an issue of authority. Is your authority God and and God through his revealed word, or is your authority yourself? It's like a man or the maker or the potter or the clay. I have different ways of putting it. In fact, this is one thing we'll be focusing in, I think, on the next reality, that broader issue. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so it comes down to this issue of authority, and in a secular in world, in a secular worldview, the authority is the self. You're the person who determines what's true about reality, what's good and bad and right and wrong. And so I kind of tried to summarize as a filtering mechanism for people, what does secularism look like then in mm-hmm. culture? Once you understand that ultimately this is a battle of authority, what does that actually look like when you find it out in the wild, so mm-hmm. to speak? So I boil it down to four things, that feelings are the ultimate guide, happiness is the ultimate goal. Uh, judging is the ultimate sin, mm-hmm. and God is the ultimate guess. Mm-hmm. In other words, don't pretend or don't don't purport to know that you have any confident basis for knowing about God. If you mm-hmm. want to believe that there's somebody out there or something out there, that's fine. People aren't going to berate you for that. But if you come to say that, oh, wait, we actually can be confident in our knowledge that he exists, and not just that he exists, but who he is, because mm-hmm. he's revealed himself to us, that's unacceptable. So that's what I mean by God is the ultimate guess right, in that sense. Right. So those are kind of the four ways that you see this idea of authority of the self manifest himself in culture Mm -hmm. through the feelings, the happiness, the judging, and through God being the ultimate guest. Yeah, it is a a perfect characterization of what we're facing. And I think for people who are trying to make sense of what they see in the news, what they see in the movies, what they hear uh, from if they're sending their kids to public school, what their kids are coming back with, all of this, those four things are what they're hearing and learning. And, um, you know, I, I, I've said this before, but I want to say it again because I don't want people to miss it. Your kids are getting discipled one way or another. Either you're going to disciple them or someone else is going to disciple them. And the other ones who want to disciple them do so very aggressively, very persuasively, and they have your kids generally more than you have your kids. So which discipleship is going to prevail? You know, um, and so this is why giving a tool for Christians to understand what is going on in the world, what is going on out there, why are people believing the things they believe or acting the way they're acting, voting the way they're voting, be, being behind these crazy things that seem on the face of it destructive and counterintuitive, there's something else that's driving it feelings, happiness, not judging. And when it comes to God, whatever, just don't. Don't act like you know anything about it, because that's a kind of judgment against us, and that doesn't make us feel good, and so we're not happy, <laughs> you know? And so that just, like, assaults all of the four points. So uh, anyway, you do a great job with this, and I uh, just want to emphasize, you want to receive Natasha's book, send us a gift. Uh, I don't know what the limits are. Sometimes they say, like, $25 or more or something. I don't know what it is, but you'll get your stuff in the mail. Um but you send something in for any amount. Okay, thank you. Amy jumped in here. Any amount? Okay, well, any <laughs> amount. But please be generous. <laughs> uh, but um, we're going to say thank you for your gift to Stand a Reason by sending you a signed copy. Is this one signed? I'm looking at it. It might not have been signed not, yet. Not yet, because she's got be. about. Oh no, it's not yet. Very but soon. It's, it will be very soon because she's got to finish up her last pile of books. A signed copy of Natasha's wonderful book, "Faithfully Different: Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture." Natasha, it's always a treat to have you on board. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking care of this and signing all these books, too. All right, let's take a break, and we'll come back with more on Stand to Reason. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, just a couple of quick announcements before we get rolling here again. And uh, I have mentioned this in the past, just um, um, repeating that or reminding you, we need a uh, a full-time in-person front office manager here at Standard Reason. Okay, that's going to be somebody who lives here in Southern California, hopefully close within reasonable striking distance from Long Beach. That's where our offices are at. And... Um, they will be performing a variety of administrative duties, uh, office support, organizational stuff, uh, office operations, um, uh, customer service, correspondence, supplies, filing systems, that kind of stuff. But we're looking for somebody that can really help us out here. So just letting you know, if you want to get details on that, go to str.org forward slash careers, okay, forward slash careers. And then just a reminder that next week on Wednesday, December 7th, John Noyes will be doing To The Point Live uh, at noon Pacific time. And uh, not sure what his topic is going to be, but they're always insightful and uh, relevant. He'll be on Facebook and Twitter Twitter and YouTube. You can go to str.org for the uh, scroll down to the bottom for the links for the social media channels and uh, there you go for that. 
By the way, I haven't talked to you guys since Minneapolis. Is that right? We were in Denver last week. We were in, yeah, Minneapolis was the weekend before last, and we had, just for the record, 3,800 students. That's rounding up a little bit, but uh, we did, I didn't add much, just a handful to give you raw numbers, 3,800. Now, I told the team today when we were reflecting back on that event in this massive church, the largest one in the state of uh, Minnesota, rather, um, Grace Church Eden Prairie, that um, for the Friday night thing, I'm not involved at all on Friday nights. The team is doing their thing, and it's unbelievable. We've got another one coming up in Dallas in February, then in Philly in March, and then in April we have one in Augusta, Georgia. Same same program, same plan, same speakers, same everything, okay, just smaller venues. But I set myself up at the bottom level all the way in the back by the sound booth and the cameras, right? So I got a good picture of the entire thing. And uh, I just enjoy the program and pray and reflect and sometimes take notes of things that we might improve. But this event has gotten so good that in Minneapolis there was very little to improve on. Mostly, as I sat back there, I just was taking in the impact of nearly 4,000 mostly young people, I mean middle schoolers and high schoolers, that are there praising God with the worship team and following along in the wonderful training and instruction that's lots of fun, but very substantive, the way the team has put this together. And as I sat there and I looked around, I was overwhelmed with it all. I was so thankful and so touched and so, you know, moved emotionally to see all of these people at that event learning about the truth of Christianity and how to stand tall and stand up in the line of fire if necessary to represent Christ. So it was fabulous. If you are within striking distance of any of the last three of our annual events, Reality, and those will be in February, March, and April, as I mentioned, in Dallas and in Philadelphia and in Augusta, Georgia. Um, please plan to be there. Um, all of our events have sold out. And, yeah, there were a few extra seats still left in the upper reaches of the upper balcony of Grace Church Eden Prairie in Minneapolis. But every other seat that wasn't a nosebleed section, was taken up with excited teenagers. So uh, please be sure to sign up soon for those events. I think we already have a bunch of people already signed up for Dallas. I know we did. I don't know what the number is, but I know like three or four weeks ago we had a lot of people signed up months in advance. Um, you can uh, get all the details at realityapologetics.com, realityapologetics.com for the remaining events. So I encourage you to uh, consider that. Um, just had, of course, the chat with Natasha, and uh, I did speak highly of the book, but it was all genuine. And I think she does one of the best jobs of giving understanding, insight to the whole project that uh, we've come to call deconstruction and deconversion, how people are taking a critical look at their Christian faith not using the Bible as authority to help answer their questions, but using other authorities, as it were, and therefore many of them deconverting. 
and um, and she talks about that, and also critical race th theory, which is uh, now called something different. I get the acronym wrong all the time. DIE is die, IED is an explosive device, so it'd be DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, and uh, this is something that is not good for our culture, not good for anybody, including the people it purports to help. But uh, what the heck is that thing? Natasha does a great job explaining that in her book. Um, all right, let's go to some open mic calls. And this is uh, these are calls that people call in with. And they can either go to our homepage and under podcasts, where it says live podcasts, broadcasts rather. Wait, is that right? Homepage podcast live broadcast. Okay, that's the link series. Um, you'll find a provision for you to push a button and then record your question. And you can also simply phone it in at 857-DIAL-STR or 857-342-5787. And then just leave your question, hopefully briefly and concisely, in in either of the uh, the methods I just described, and then we'll get to them. So here we have a question on intersex from Luisa Villegas, and let's hear what Luisa has to say. Hello, Greg. My name is Luisa Villegas, and um, first and foremost, I'm so excited to finally be recording um, a message for you for um, Stand to Reason. Um, I'll just get to the point. Um, Greg, I had um, uh, some questions, um, misunderstandings about um, one particular issue. Um, that is the issue of um, the intersex condition, the existence of it. Um, my sister was born um, that way, and um, she's just been like um, kind of dealing with it. Um, I'm still a little bit confused by the um, overall um, condition, and I'd really try my best to understand it, but anyway, um, I saw on May 7th that you posted on, um, Stand to Reason, or your team posted, and it says, objection, the existence of intersex conditions and variations of chromosomes support the idea that sex and gender are on a spectrum and therefore not binary, and then answer, the vast majority of intersex people still appear and function as either male or female. Number two, variations in sex characteristics don't nullify the norm. Three, we know there are only two sexes because there are only two possible sex cells, sperm or egg. Four, we know there are only two sexes because human bodies are made for two sex intercourse. And yeah, so reading that generally... um excuse me, um, clarifies a lot of uh, my confusion. Um, the only um, thing that I'm a bit um, confused about is um, how should we be approaching um, individuals who say that they are intersex or told, you know, by the medical community that that's what they are. Um, yes, I'm still just a bit confused about those types of topics. I would really like to hear your thoughts on that, if it is possible. Um, if not, I just really want to thank you, Greg, and your team for um, doing what you guys do. I really love the show. And um, God bless you, Greg. And um, thank you so much. Have a very good day. 
Oh, that's sweet. Thank you, Louisa, for uh, the question. And actually, you covered a lot of the bases uh, based on our post, and you outlined them very nicely. Um, there's a couple of issues that are involved here, so I'm going to speak somewhat generally before I go to, in a sense, uh, the specific I said a response to the specific question, how do we approach individuals that say they are intersex? And here's the first issue is, what is intersex? Now, um, the reason I say that is because there is a definition that um, has been characteristic, I think, of this condition uh, that has expanded almost beyond recognition as a result of political influence, okay? And I was talking to Alan Schleeman, who specializes more in these kinds of things, just last week, and he says, look, at if a, if, a, if a boy has a testicle that is not descended yet, they would some will characterize that as intersex. So that functionally, the way the term is being used now is it, it, it can be used to describe almost any condition that is beyond the the uh, the normal, um, I guess the, the normal expression of sexuality, and uh, and when I say expression, I mean physical characteristics here. All right, and so uh, a a boy, for example, who has a testicle that has not descended, okay, there's something that's not right there, but notice that in that case, and that was the illustration he used. Notice in that case that we're talking about a boy who has testicles that have not responded quite the way they're supposed to respond at that stage of development. So this is a boy that's having a little bit of difficulty with sexual development, but there's no ambiguity about the sexuality of that individual. And it's interesting, and I don't know the details here, that the Louisa said, I have a sister that was born intersex. Now, what this reveals is, um, and again, something that Alan clarified for me, is that, in first of all, the term, it was meant to identify somebody who, has, who is genuinely sexually ambiguous by visual inspection, all right, where it's just not clear what their physical sex actually is, not by initial observations. They seem to be intersex or somewhere in between two sexes, all right? Now, the definition, ha now that is a very, very rare occurrence, and I'm trying to remember the statistic I looked up, because on the one hand, people will say, well, intersex happens about the same, with the same amount of frequency as red hair, which is maybe, what, 9% or something like that. So it's, it's as common as red hair. Well, that depends on how you define intersex. If intersex is going to encompass all of these conditions that don't represent, um, in a certain sense, physical perfection in terms of sexual apparatus. I don't know how, how else to say that. But anything that's a little out of the ordinary, well, in this term ends up losing all significant meaning. It doesn't mean that there's ambiguity or that gender is fluid in any sense. 
What has happened is the definition has expanded because of political pressures to make it seem like there are all of these ambiguous, sexually ambiguous individuals, which demonstrates, as uh, as Louisa characterized it, that um, that there is um, look at here that, that there's a spectrum, and that sex isn't strictly speaking binary. Turns out. That in almost all of these cases, even when there is initial ambiguity, a further analysis can show what sex the individual actually is, whether it's genetic or interior uh, organs or whatever. And the numbers that are genuinely on the cusp, and we don't know, and I got this from the organization that has intersex in their name, something to the effect of the National Organization of Intersex People, is something like 0.002%. That is 0.002%. That is a fraction of a percent. (laughs) That isn't just a percentage. That is a fraction of a percent, okay? And so um, it turns out that this condition, where there's genuine ambiguity, is extremely rare. There are lots of conditions where there are little difficulty that is congenital. But the, but the exceptional circumstance where there is ambiguity is extremely rare. So, and here's the second point, and this is kind of a, a political saying, but it certainly applies here. Hard cases make bad policy. Hard cases make bad policy. That is, you don't draw conclusions about the general state of affairs from extremely unique circumstances. You draw conclusions from the general state of affairs, okay? And the general state of affairs is that sex is binary with regards to human beings. There's there's no ambiguity about that. And by the way, to prove the point, nobody raised this issue for thousands of years. Has there always been genuinely intersex people? Yes, very, very rare. Has there always been confusion about gender and sex? No, there's almost never been any confusion by anybody who has eyes to see. We are talking here about the nature of reality. And so there are people who want to deny the nature of reality, and they have their reasons for doing so, but then they stretch the facts to make it sound like their denial reflects reality that, in this case, um, gender is on a spectrum. No, it's not on a spectrum. You have males and females. That is the human. That is the, that is the nature of being human, because that's how human beings reproduce. And our genes tell the story, and our physical bodies that match the genes tell the story as well, and that's how we reproduce. Now, are there exceptions? Sure. But human beings are also um, bipedal. That means they stand on two feet. Are there people, children, infants, unfortunately born without legs? Yes. That doesn't mean that humans aren't bipedal. And that leg, and that being legged is on some kind of spectrum just because there might be some people born with no legs and some people born with half legs or one leg and no other leg or one and a half, whatever. That doesn't mean that the normal state of affairs is in question. Okay, so 
This brings me then to the question. So what we've shown is, first of all, the definition of what is intersex is really currently up for grabs in a lot of circles. That's where you get the big numbers because this definition is stretched beyond recognition almost, and, uh, and therefore it's distorting the numbers. Um, secondly, okay, there are these unfortunate congenital circumstances, but we don't adjust our understanding of what is normal and appropriate because there are exceptional cases. And the third thing, and this is the question that was offered by Louisa, how do we approach individuals that say they're intersex? I'm, I'm not even sure that there's an approach <laughs> to people who say that they're intersex. I mean, I'm Bohemian. That means my forebears are from Prague. How do you approach people who say they're Bohemian? But there's no approach. They're just reporting something about themselves. In the case of those who say they're intersex, they're identifying some ab abnormality. That's obvious. But what do we say to that? Oh, congratulations. Oh, too bad. Oh, maybe we can get that fixed. Uh, maybe the best thing is to just let it ride. Now, I think some people are trying to make a, pol a kind of political point, or maybe philosophical point, by announcing they're intersex. I'm intersex, therefore gender is fluid. Oh, that's a whole different situation. Because there are people that are genuinely intersex does not mean gender is fluid. Really? What's your evidence for that? Just open your eyes. That's all I can say. If this is not obvious to you, then I don't know what what would be. It, to me, it's just as obvious that humans are binary in their sexuality as that humans are bipedal and have two arms. Characteristically, that's the natural state of affairs. Same thing with gender. But there's so much radical confusion about this because I think people have willfully uh, I got to be careful how I want to say this, but I, I don't know what how else this could be said. They have willfully blinded themselves because the the correct answer is so obvious. They have some kind of internal motivation that makes them want to deny the obvious. What's going on there? I can't say with regards to every individual, and and uh, the people I'm talking about here are ones that want to capitalize on the existence of those who are intersex to make the point that therefore gender in humans is not binary. Okay, the the first doesn't lead to the next. Period. And even in those cases that you want to expand the definition, there is no ambiguity about 99% of those cases that might be called intersex now with regards to the gender or sex, if you will. It's easy to determine that. Those for whom it's very difficult, that's a small sliver of the population. And so we deal with the exceptions as exceptions. If somebody were to tell me I'm intersex, I would probably ask them, why are you telling me this? If someone were to announce to me, I'm intersex, I, I wouldn't even understand why they're, ask, they're, they're telling me this. And so that's probably what I would say. No, I wouldn't be condescending to them. I wouldn't be mean to them. I wouldn't be nasty. Um, 
I might ask them, what do you mean you're intersex? That would be another question. That would be a standard tactical maneuver. But I, I, don't, I don't even know why they would ask that question. Now, I know why uh, Louisa has brought it up, because she has to deal with it in her family. And I think with her family, it's just a matter of being loving and accepting to her sister and supportive of whatever other decisions have to be made medically or otherwise to help her sister live with whatever level of congenital defect she's facing. But that's true about any physical defect or abnormality that we would have. Now, I think there are going to be people who are offended by the word abnormality or defect, but if this isn't a defect, I don't know what counts for that word. Um, it is out of the ordinary, and it is not the way things are supposed to be. It's not a condescension. It is not a uh, uh, a put-down. It's an acknowledgement, like saying, well, somebody lost their leg in the war, so they're an amputee, or somebody has cancer, um, and so they're having chemo. Um, it's just a an unfortunate physical condition that we do our best to deal with and love the person in the process. There's no need to make a political statement about it or to draw the um, unjustified conclusion that because there are a very few people with sexual ambiguity that somehow gender and sex is fluid and on a spectrum. That's just foolishness. Okay, so that should cover that one, and um, we just got about 10 minutes here. Let's just take another one, and I haven't surveyed these. Let's see what... Uh, all right, let's take Shane's from Temecula. That's the next one on the list. I'm kind of going through the time one, so if you just recently use the Open Mic Calls feature to put in a question, it might be a while before we get to you, but we're moving through you. Let's hear from Shane. Hey, Greg, I have a question about the soul. So to me, it makes sense that in order to be alive, there must be a soul, that the body is just material and that when the soul leaves the body, the organism dies. However, I've heard that scientists and philosophers like Hugh Ross state that not all living organisms have souls and that only higher beings are soulish creatures. But that would seem to mean that at least some entities don't need a soul to be alive and would seem to support an evolutionary materialism. So in order to make a solid Christian defense for the soul, could you please explain who has a soul and why? And without a soul, what would be the difference between, say, a living and a dead ant? Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate all your guidance over the years. Oh, You've been an essential influence in how I see the world. Thank you, Shane. That's really sweet. And that's a good question. I do think there's some confusion here, okay? Um, the soul is the center of the self-aware ego. And when I say ego, I don't mean as in egotistical, I mean as in the self. So we have an awareness of ourselves, and ourselves are having that awareness, okay? The seat of that awareness is our soul, okay? In sentient creatures... Okay, sentience means having awarenesses and the things that go along with awareness, like sensations and thoughts and beliefs and acts of will and intentions. I think those are the five 
characteristics of the soul, uh, the standard ones. These are all things that are not features of the physical world. They are not characteristic of physical stuff. Physical stuff doesn't have desires, intentions. It doesn't experience feelings of any sort. However, souls, sentient creatures do, okay? So, therefore, any creature that is sentient has a soul that is the seat of the sentience, okay? And that is the self that has the capacity to do the things that souls can do. That would mean that all sentient creatures have souls, all right? Uh, not only human beings, but Fido has a soul, and Fifi has a soul too, and all creatures that have sentience or awareness of some kind. Now, in the case of sentient creatures, it just seems to be the case that when they die, the soul, well, the soul that is the source of sentience or the center of sentience is gone or disappears. You take the soul out of the body and the body just lays there, okay? So in sentient creatures, the soul is an essential part of being alive. Okay, that's, that's at least the way it seems, and that would be my way of assessing it. Um, but there are plants that don't have sentience. That doesn't mean they can't respond to stimuli. They can, but that doesn't mean they're responding to stimuli in virtue of feeling a stimulus and then acting in response to it. They are not making choices to act. Okay, so there are all kinds of chemical systems that can respond to intervention. All right, and in, in the case of living things, there is there does seem to be a quality that has been called in the past Elan Vital, or the, the living, the life force, that is part of that, that seems to be gone, obviously, when there is no life, okay? So life seems to be more than just the physical combination, uh, or the combination of physical things, right? There seems to be something else that's part of it, and this is what has been referred to as the Elan Vital. Um, but a thing can be alive, with that vitality, so to speak, yet not be sentient. That is a function of the soul. So you have two different types of creatures, if you will. You have living creatures that don't have sentience or souls, and you have living creatures that do have sentience and souls. So in, in my way of thinking, it's entirely possible for something to be alive without having a soul, um, and not at the same time be supportive of evolutionary materialism, okay? Uh, materialism is the idea that the only thing that exists is the material realm, and the material realm develops according to the naturalistic evolutionary way of seeing things, according to an evolutionary mechanism. If we deny the existence of the soul, all we are left with is physical stuff moving around. That's it. I guess you could say no soul, there still could be life, there could be an Elan Vital, but materialists even deny that. That's a, the, either the ghost in the machine, that would be the soul, or this mysterious occult force, this hidden force called life. They don't believe in that. All they believe in is a, a mixture of a certain organization of physical stuff. Now the question is, when we reflect on what it means to be sentient and what it means to be alive, 
does it seem that those notions can be reduced to merely material mechanisms? And the answer is no. In fact, the sentience problem has been especially difficult for atheists, um, and one well-known philosophical atheist, um, Thomas Nagel, has written a book called Mind and Cosmos, where he talks about this problem. And this is why he challenges the Darwinian model, because consciousness cannot be reduced to some kind of physical force. And it's such a problem that new atheist Daniel Dennett just denies consciousness as a reality completely. If consciousness can't be reduced to something physical, which it can't, and only physical things exist, then consciousness doesn't exist. That's Daniel Dennett. Consciousness is an illusion. Of course, the problem with that, multiple problems, is one of them is you have to ask yourself the question, what is an illusion? An illusion is when your consciousness is being appeared to in a false way. So you have to have a consciousness in order to have an illusion. So how can consciousness be an illusion? What's having that illusion? Is an illusion having an illusion? You see the problem. Okay. But notice that they take this step because they know they cannot reduce consciousness to something material. It is irreducible. That means a materialistic explanation of the universe is not adequate to explain all the obvious features of the universe. Okay. I reject the evolutionary model um, not just because I believe in physical things, because you can believe in evolution and not be a materialist. Um, and there are lots of them, theistic evolutionists, for example. Um, I reject it on the merits. I don't think the mechanism of evolution is adequate to accomplish what evolutionists think it can accomplish. So as a biblical Christian, I have a worldview that encompasses all these things and can explain these things without any difficulty. I don't have to deny obvious realities like the soul or teleology or order or design or anything like that in order to hold to my worldview. It fits perfectly in my worldview. All right. Hope that answers your question, Shane. Thank you for the kind comments. And that's it for the show, friends. Greg Kokel here. For Stand to Reason, give them heaven. Bye-bye now.